we've been going through the book of Ephesians for the past uh, few months, and uh, we're continuing here in Ephesians 4, verse 32 to 5, verse 2. Hear now the word read. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. All right, so well, good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I'm the assistant pastor here at King's Church, and we want to welcome you, and it's good to see everyone here, and we want to especially welcome you if you're visiting or here with us for the first time. Um, And this morning, as Jason mentioned, we're continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. Now, throughout history, there have been many countercultural movements against the perceived mainstream culture. There were the Bohemians in the latter half of the 19th century, the beat generation of the 40s and 50s, the hippies in the 60s, maybe some of you participated in that, the punk subculture in the 70s and 80s, and of course, in the 2000s, the hipsters came onto the scene. They were known for the fashion sense of a lumberjack, awesome facial hair, fixed gear bikes, fixed gear single speed bikes or fixies, tattoos, and love for single-origin pour-over coffee and craft beers, etc. And in more recent news, oh yeah, I have this picture to try to capture all those things. I wasn't able to get everything in there, but hopefully some of the elements are there. And in more recent news, I learned that apparently hipsters are dead. I did a, if you just do a Google search for, are hipsters dead, there will be a ton of articles. And There have been numerous articles written on the demise of the hipster. In a 2018 article from Vulture magazine argues for the death of the hipster by looking at the number of Google searches for the term hipster. As you can see in a chart that I have, in June 2015, marked by that dotted line, that's when the fateful downturn began. There's another article called Capturing the Death of the Brooklyn Hipster, and this is from Huck Magazine, and it interviews and exhibits the work of a photographer named Vero Belinsky, who lives in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. And if you know anything about hipsterism, Williamsburg is ground zero for hipster culture. And in the interview, she was asked this question, what does individualism mean to hipsters, and how did you portray this through your photography? And her answer is very interesting. In my opinion, hipsters think they look very unique and special. They don't realize that they belong to a mash of similar looking people. In my photography, I show on the one hand the sensitivity of the individuals with their gesture, expression, and self-chosen pose, but on the other hand, I show the exact opposite, the similarity of the outward appearance. She goes on to say, Hipsters desperately try to be individual so that they never notice that they have long been wearing a uniform. Ouch, right? Now, 
while we're picking on hipsters, which is my own generation, so I can, I can do that, the irony is that every counterculture, from hippies to hipsters, in a desire to express individuality and be different from the mainstream, they ended up creating a subculture where everyone looked the same and acted the same. Why is this? It doesn't take scientists to figure out that we like to imitate each other. That's the simple answer. Humans have an innate ability for imitation. Children imitate their parents, both the good and bad. It's often scary, right, to be a parent when you see your kid imitating the good and the bad. And if you're an older sibling, you've no doubt yelled at a younger sibling for being a copycat, right? I'm sure some of you can relate. And if you're a poor younger sibling like me, you don't understand why big brother or sister got angry, because isn't imitation just the sincerest form of flattery? But as cultural and countercultural trends have proved, imitation isn't limited to children. Adults do it too. We're not as unique as we like to think ourselves to be. Whether consciously or unconsciously, there are people that we are trying to be like. It could be a mentor, a friend, someone who is successful in our field, maybe a famous person or a celebrity. Often imitation is tied to our identity. If you're a manager or a business leader, you might try to be like Steve Jobs or like Jack Welch, the famous CEO of GE. If you're a mother, you might try to be like your own mother or an older woman that you really respect. But if you're a Christian, where being Christian ought to be the core of your identity, far above work and human relationships, who are you to imitate? Who are we as a church, Christians gathered together, who are we to imitate? Well, as we read in our passage for today, the central command, the primary call for us as people who have put off the old and who have put on the new, who've experienced the grand realities of Ephesians 1 through 3, we are to be imitators of God. And this is the first answer to the three questions we want to ask this, te- this text today. The first question is, who are we to imitate? And the simple answer is God. God is the one we are to imitate. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians 4 from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. And in verse 17 through 24, we were told not to live in our former way of life. Before we knew who Jesus was, we weren't, were not to live in the former ignorance and sensuality and impurity, but rather, instead, we are to live as new creations in righteousness and holiness. Those were the big ideas, the general commands. So Paul, wanting to put some flesh to that, gets real specific about what our new life is supposed to look like in verses 25 and onward. Instead of speaking falsehood, we are to speak truth. Instead of stealing, we are to do honest work. Instead of corrupting talk, we are to say things that build others up. And having zeroed in on these specific actions, Paul again wants to capture his overall intent in Ephesians 5, verse 1. So 
he begins, therefore, in light of everything I've said, in summary, be imitators of God. It's as if Paul is working the zoom lens on a camera. Um, He started wide at the beginning of this section in verse 17, and then he zoomed in in verses 25 and following. And now in in chapter 5, verse 1, he's zooming back out. So we get the main idea once again. It's an effective way to teach because we need both the specifics and the big picture. We need the specific commands to speak truth, to not let the sun go down on our anger, to do honest work, to build up others with our speech, to help us grasp what it means to live out of our new identity. Paul is giving us concrete actions. He's giving us advice for practical living. He's he's getting down into the dirt of real life. But one of the dangers of focusing on these specific instructions is that we might make this the sum and whole of our standard of right living. Once I've done these things, I'm good. We might set the bar too low. We might think that those verses are the whole of what it means to be a Christian. But Paul wants us not to miss the big picture. Those very real commands can ultimately be summed up in the exhortation to be imitators of God. And this is not exactly a new idea. We studied Leviticus last summer, and in Leviticus 19.2, God tells Moses to tell the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, after giving a lot of practical instructions about anger, lust, oath-taking, loving your enemies, he sums it all up by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now it's Paul's turn to say the same thing. Be imitators of God. For some of us, this command is meant to be a kick in the pants. We need to wake up. We've been sleepwalking through life. We've lost our direction, our purpose, and our zeal, and honestly, we feel like something is missing. From 1980 to 2001, the U.S. Army's recruiting slogan was, Be All You Can Be. And being a child of the 90s, I remember seeing that slogan on TV commercials for as long as I can remember. And I think a reason that this slogan was so loved and so successful, unlike the short-lived army of one that followed, is that it appealed to our desire to live to our full potential, to perhaps be pushed and go beyond what we think is possible. And there's something incredibly thrilling when we see someone live up to their potential. Here's an example. Many articles have been written about how Michael Phelps has the perfect body for swimming, from his long torso in proportion to his shorter legs, which helps to reduce his drag, his unusually long wingspan that helps generate power, his size 14 feet that act like flippers. And yet, there are surely other people out there with a similar physique. What thrills us is to see someone with this incredible body for swimming living up to his full potential as he trained hard, competed, and achieved at the highest level, 
to become the most decorated Olympian of all time with an astounding 23 gold medals. Does anyone know what the next closest gold medal count for an individual is? It's nine. If you're a Christian, we need to know that we've been recreated, made alive into a new person. The Holy Spirit now lives within you and you've been given all the potential to be holy, to be like God in his character. So when Paul calls you to be imitators of God, he's not asking you to do something impossible, but he's asking you to live up to your potential. He's commanding you to live up to your potential, to be who you were created and recreated in Christ Jesus to be. Which brings us to our next question. How are we to imitate? How are we to do this? How are we to be imitators of God? Well, the first answer, I'm gonna actually have two answers to this question, is love. Verse two says we are to walk in love. Paul follows up his command to be imitators of God by urging us to walk in love. And if you're new or curious and learning about the Christian faith, you might be wondering why use the term walk. Well, everyone did a lot of walking in biblical times, so much so that it simply became a metaphor for living. So when Paul calls us to walk in love, he's simply saying live in love. Your life should be marked by love. And remember, he's writing to the Ephesian church. Individually and collectively as a church, we are to live a life of love. So even more fundamentally, we need, we need to ask the question, what does it mean to love? Does it mean to have good feelings towards everyone? Does it mean being polite and nice to everyone? For many in our culture today, this is a type of love we ought to have for others. It's a wave and a smile, a pay it forward by buying Starbucks for the person behind you in line type of love. And I'm not demeaning those, those types of kind actions. We certainly should be more kind to other people, and that would be a good thing. But I do believe that God's call for us to walk in love is something more something more rigorous, something more substantial, something more life-changing and life-affecting. In order to understand what love is, we only need to look at the example of Christ laid out in the rest of verse two. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we see immediately that the love that we are called to live out is based on Christ's example. The way he, loved, he has loved us and a key feature of that love is self-sacrifice because it says he gave himself up for us. One of Charles Dickens' most famous works is a novel, A Tale of Two Cities, which is set in the troubled years of the French Revolution. And in the book, the two main characters, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, are opposites in many ways. Charles is a Frenchman of a noble family and is a man of of virtue, of honor, respect, and courage. While Sidney is British and, in contrast, is a lazy, alcoholic attorney. Not that that's tied to attorneys in any sort of way. Full of, I know we have a lot in this room, full of self-pity who cares for nothing and no one. And yet, there's something interesting about them. They look extraordinarily similar, almost like twins, and yet they're strangers to each other. 
but they meet and, you know, things happen in the book. And at the climax of the book, sorry, I'm giving it away, Charles has been arrested in Paris, and being part of the ruling class during the French Revolution was a very bad thing, because it basically meant you were going to have your head chopped off. But Sidney, who has lived his whole life, turn inward, living selfishly, finally sees a chance to give meaning to his life, especially since Charles is recently married, has fallen in love, and is such an upstanding citizen, doing good to the world. He decides, Sidney decides to do the unthinkable and heroically switches places with Charles and instead is executed. It's without a doubt one of the greatest stories of self-sacrifice in literature. But there's one glaring difference between Sidney's self-sacrifice and the way Jesus gave himself up for us. Romans 5, 7 through 8 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Sidney gave up his life for a good, virtuous person that deserved to live, Christ died for sinners, for self-centered haters of God who fully deserve to die. That's why I love this definition of love by Paul Tripp, who is a Christian counselor and author. In one of his books about marriage, he defines love as this. Love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. It's a great definition because it captures the essence of biblical love. No one compelled the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to come up with their plan to rescue lost sinners such as us. And Jesus' mission from the very beginning was to go to the cross and say, my life for yours. And unlike Charles Darnay, there was nothing good or lovely about us, nor did we love him in return. And this is the way we ought to love one another. It begins with the relationships here in this room, within the local church. This is our witness. This is our declaration to the world that we are people transformed by grace that we have been raised from death to life, that we have known and experienced Christ's love and now follow him as our friend and our king as we love the unlovely in our midst, which is really all of us. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. King's Church, I encourage you to walk in love. Keep on striking up that conversation with the person who barely gives you the time of day. Keep on inviting that person to lunch who continually avoids you or makes excuses. Keep on opening your heart to the person who has yet to share in return. Keep on caring for that person, even when they ignore your needs and problems and issues. In a culture that tells us to cut toxic people out of our lives, 
to avoid those who trigger us, to drop the dead weights because we're too important, Christ tells us something different. He tells us to walk in love. Now, I'm not saying that we don't exercise wisdom, but self-protection is not at the core of Christian love. Rather, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving because that is how Christ loved us. How are we to imitate? The second way we are to imitate is to forgive. Besides walking in love, there's another important expression to that primary command, the high calling of being imitators of God. If you notice, Jason only covered up to verse 31 of chapter four last week, which tells us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now having stated the things we should not do, verse 32 tells us how we should act. Again, Paul is beginning to zoom out of the specifics of the previous verses into more general attitudes and actions. We are to be kind, that is full of compassion. We are to be tender-hearted. There is a softness rather than a hardness towards one another. But notice the last attitude we are to have toward one another. We are to forgive. William Arthur Ward, a Christian educator and writer, has this quote. We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. Maybe some of you might find that quote a little cheesy, but I find that there is some profound truth in that statement, that we are most like God when we forgive. And I believe that's why immediately after mentioning forgiveness, we are commanded to imitate God. Like love, forgiveness is central to the heart of God, both in his attitude and actions toward us. The two hands of the command to imitate God are to love and to forgive. So why forgiveness? As we've been talking about, we live in this tension between the old and the new. Our old sinful nature has been dealt a mortal blow, yet it still holds on to us as it takes its gasping last breaths. And thus, despite our new righteous identity, we do sin. We do hurt each other. And it's often terribly and deeply. Forgiveness is the only true path to repairing and healing broken relationships. Without God's forgiveness, our broken relationship with him could have never been healed. And without forgiving each other, our broken relationships with each other will never be healed. And having dealt with some very deep-seated bitterness and an unwillingness to forgive a close family member in my own life, I will say that forgiving is something far easier said than done. If you're having trouble forgiving someone in your life right now, and I'm sure that's many of you, I fully sympathize. When we have been sinned against continually and repeatedly, perhaps for years and years, or perhaps as one great and traumatic sin, we build up tall fortresses of resentment and bitterness that keep us from forgiving. And for me personally, your reason might be different. I could not forgive 
because it felt incredibly unfair. It was injustice to the highest degree. I wanted my pound of flesh. I wanted this person to suffer and feel some of the pain they had inflicted upon me. And to simply say, I no longer hold your sins toward me against you. You no longer have debts you need to pay. And to extend myself toward them again in love, I couldn't do it. I wanted justice and I wanted vengeance. But for the sake of God's glory, for the unity of the church, and because of God's incredible love, forgiveness, and grace towards you, we are commanded and called to forgive. This brings me to my last question. What empowers us to imitate? What empowers us to imitate God in love and forgiveness? The answer is God's love for us in Christ. Notice that with all three commands, there is an as that follows. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Be forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgave you. As Christians, what fuels us to to obey God does not come from within, but from without. It has nothing to do with us, but what has been done for us, what has been done to us. We imitate God because God's rescue plan that involved Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again on the third day also involved adopting us into his family. We don't imitate God as slaves pleasing a cruel master, but as sons and daughters, always and fully loved, trusting that our heavenly father only wants our best, only wants us to fully enjoy the life he has given us, which involves walking his path of obedience. We walk in love because Christ is not only an example of self-sacrificing love, but his self-sacrificing love has affected each and every one of us personally. He said, my life for yours. We forgive because while others have wronged us and sinned against us and hurt us, that is nothing compared to what we have done towards God. It is impossible to forgive if you just think about the situation, if you think about the relationship only. I know it, I've been there. When I could not forgive that close family member, I saw my heart shrivel up in hatred and hardness, and it frightened me to see what I was becoming. So I sought help, and I'll never forget that moment. It seared into my memory, clear as day, when I was on the phone with my pastor, and he gently told me, David, have you forgotten that you have been forgiven? God's grace towards you is so great. He has not held your sins against you, but he has laid them on Christ. His heart is full of love toward you. It was definitely the work of the Holy Spirit, but at that moment, I felt so overwhelmed by God's mercy, ashamed that I had been so hard-hearted and blind, and then loved all at the same moment. I felt the towers of bitterness and resentment crumbling, and even in that moment, a part of me hated it, but it was also so freeing. I truly believe with all my heart that the good news the gospel of God's forgiveness and love in Jesus Christ 
is power. Power to love, forgive, and imitate God. Believe in this good news and live for him. Let's pray together. Father God, overwhelm us with your love and your forgiveness towards us. Our hearts are hard against so many people, maybe even people in this room, and we need you. We are constantly being sinned against, and we are constantly tempted to become bitter and resentful and to hate people. But God, turn our eyes away from ourselves, the situation, the relationship, the other person, and turn our eyes to you. Help us to see your incredible love and grace and forgiveness towards us. We can forgive, we can love, because you forgave us and you loved us. We pray all this in your son's name, amen.